This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Premier Kathleen Wynne, and no, we're not talking about hydro prices. We're not talking about other controversies that have plagued her. We're talking about the latest comments that she has made accusing the children of Tim Horton's billionaire co-founder of bullying their employees by reducing their benefits in response to the province's increased minimum wage. I'll refresh your memory. There was a letter written to workers at two Tim Horton's restaurants in Coburg, Ontario. Ron Joyce Jr. and Jerry Horton Joyce said that as of January 1st, staff would no longer be entitled to paid breaks and would have to pay a portion of the cost for dental and health benefits to offset the $2.40 jump in the hourly minimum wage. Premier Kathleen Wynne says if Joyce Jr. wants to challenge the Ontario government policy, he should come directly to her and not take it out on his workers. Well, let's hear from the Premier what she had to say on this topic. When I read the reports about Ron Joyce Jr., who, I mean, he's a man whose family founded Tim Hortons. The chain was sold for billions of dollars. And when I read how he was treating his employees, it just felt to me like this was a pretty clear act of bullying. I hope that he will reverse his decision. I hope that he understands that this is really not a decent thing to be doing in a place as wealthy as Ontario. So that's what the Premier had to say yesterday in regards to this situation, basically saying if Mr. Joyce wants to pick a fight, hey, come at me. Pick a fight with me. Well, let's bring on our first guest, Richard Brennan. He's a retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for what seemed to be eons. And Richard joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Richard, Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Good. I, I hope when Ted McMakin comes in, he brings you all uh, Tim Hortons coffee. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> um, w- w- what are your thoughts on what the Premier had to say yesterday? Well, I know the government or at least I believe the government has, you know, thought there would be some blowback. No no question about that. I guess say what they didn't expect was the family of, you know, of billionaires, I guess, to, you know, go about it the way they did. And I, that's what really rankles uh, folks. It's not so much, look, I have the greatest sympathy for small businesses. They, they work on a very tight margin, and and I think you know a lot of people think you know you know that Tim Hortons is a you know uh, the golden goose or it's you know it's a license to print money. Well, it's not quite so much, and they work on tight margins. But what rankles the premier, and I rankles a lot of other people, is that we have the Joyce family, you know, weighing in and taking these punitive measures. That's that's what really sticks in the craw of people. People understand that companies are trying to, uh, you know, trying to deal with this huge, what is a pretty huge increase. But to have, of all people, to have the Joyce family to do this, that's that's what I think bothers people more than anything else. Is it also the timing as well? I mean, uh, we, we knew the minimum wage was going to go up on January 1st. And, you know, Tim Hortons of all places, and, and especially the Joyce Horton family, uh, was it also the timing that, you know, they came right out of the gate and, you know, was really the first, at least high-profile company um, to say, yeah, we're, we're making these these changes that are going to impact our employees because of the minimum wage? 
Well, that I think that has a great deal to do of, of all. Let's let's face it. Tim Hortons has the, the family and the uh, uh, and the company, I should say, has been a very good corporate citizen. They do a lot of good, right? Sure. From, you know, sponsoring kids to you know running summer camps, the whole works. I mean, they really have been. And again, that that also feeds to the. Uh, People standing back and saying, of all companies, wh- why are they doing it? Because they've always been, they're trying to send a message that this, they don't like it. And, and you know, and you agree or not agree, they, they have to deal with this. But let me just step back for a second on this. Australia in 2016, their, their uh, minimum wage is more than $17, and that was Australian dollars, which was equivalent of almost $14. Uh, Canadian, Alberta is just gone to thirteen sixty and is pledged to go to fifteen dollars this October. In the Western world, if you will, this is not unusual. This is being done everywhere. I know it rankles people; they have to deal with it. It's an additional cost. I understand that, but it's not like this hasn't been telegraphed in one way or another for a very long time. In Ontario, it was just nine months ago, it was announced it was going to $14. That sounds like a long time, nine months. But when you're trying to figure out how to run a company and, and you know, meet the bottom line, nine months isn't, isn't a great deal of time. But people rely on, many people rely on, on this as a wage, a living wage. And people have to understand that. You know, the corporations, you know, think, well, you know, $15 it must be just a, um, you know, just a, a part-time job, and and they really, they've got something else to go to, or they've got an additional job. No, there are people who rely on this minimum wage to raise a family, if you will, which is hard to believe, but they do. And I, you add all this up together, and this is really, again, strikes at the heart of this whole issue is that of all people you know the Joyce family has weighed in in this manner I think uh, number one I agree with your sentiment regarding the living wage I mean the minimum wage used to be you know that entry level job uh, where you wouldn't be making that more or less for the rest of your life but there are people in our society who have been on and, and will continue to be on minimum wage for the rest of their lives yes I mean, you're right. You, you know, we we all worked in grocery. Not well, we all, but a lot of many people, including myself, worked in a grocery store when I was going to high school. And it was that was, you know, to put some money in my, mm-hmm. my just pocket. to get you by, right? But but yeah, but it wasn't for me to live on. Yeah. And God forbid I live on a dollar an hour, which was I was making. <laughs> 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 but we won't go there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's it is this in a point in time. Everyone has to stand up and understand that things are going to maybe cost more to accommodate this uh, minimum wage, i.e., I, I think I'm almost positive just before Christmas, Tim Hortons put their, uh, their price of their coffee up. Yep. And, and you know what? I think it's a dollar, again, it's $1.79 or something like that, I believe, for a me, uh, medium coffee now. If it goes to do two bucks, and believe me, I'm like many baby boomers, you know, living on a fixed income, 
the thing is, if it goes to two dollars, I'm still going to buy that coffee. And meantime, the company's making billions of dollars off that hike. Oh, oh yeah, right. and they are. But you know, I don't think anybody's going to complain about uh, having to pay out a few more cents on a coffee if we know it's going to a, what I call a good cause, and that good cause is is benefits and fifteen dollars an hour for their workers. And believe me, I wouldn't want to work at uh, Tim Hortons. It's not an easy job by any stretch of the imagination. You know what? Uh, funny you mention that. My wife uh, once worked for Tim's years ago and uh, said it was probably the hardest job she's ever done. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with her more. Yeah, and, and I mean, you look, you, you look at the situation, you think, okay, you're just serving coffee and donuts and sandwiches, but when you get into it, I mean, it's, it's a lot more than that. Well, all you have to do is stand there and watch them, yeah. and you uh, pretty well, uh, very quickly understand that uh, these folks are working hard for their money. Yeah. And if they if it goes to you know it's fourteen dollars now, it goes to fifteen dollars, and all, all I can say is is God bless them because uh, they certainly deserve it. But again, the companies have to balance all this off. They even Tim Hortons, and again, I I know people just think this is you know they're they're rolling in dough. But they, they work on tight margins. And I was told that, you know, the, the, uh, with, with this increase, you know, the take-home at the end of the year from each store is, is you know, approximately less than, you know, $100,000. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Well, that, you know, when you think of all the time and effort and money invested, you know, this, that is, that's not a great investment. Mm-hmm. We're chatting with uh, Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. I, I don't blame this Tim's or any other company for, for making some cutbacks, making some moves in order to, uh, you know, make sure their balance sheet is, is uh, you know, looking okay in, in terms of this minimum wage hike. Optically, though, it doesn't look very good for an iconic Canadian brand, does it? Of course it isn't. It doesn't look good, you know, it just, it has a, a really bad taste to it. You know, they're, they're going to, ha- I, I know, you know, one of the problems here, and, and I know it's probably been brought up in, in the past, but the corporate company, they're not helping out either. You know, they're, you know, they get the, the uh, owners of the Tim Hortons, they complain that the corporate company isn't help. They've done nothing to try and alleviate some of the financial problems that they're having. Yeah. And by let's say reducing the cost of the paper cups or, or whatever it might be. No, they haven't done anything like that. They're going to still make their money. And so you know everybody should be able to work together on this, but they're not. You know maybe the government brought this in too quickly. That's up. For, that's up for debate. But it's happening. It's happening right across the country. It's happening right across the world. That minimum wages are going up because governments understand that people need this money to get by. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think what the premier said yesterday? We only got about a minute here. Do you, do you think what she said yesterday is going to set the tone for what other businesses decide, or maybe they'll they'll handle it differently or, or do something different, or, or do you think that's going to force more businesses to say? Hey, uh, you know, Premier, you can go jump in the lake. We're going to do what we're going to do. Well, 
government or the business are in, in, in a bad position because what do you do? Like, what can you possibly do that doesn't tick off your consumers? So, you know, maybe at some point they're going to have to uh, rate, raise them, not in pretty soon, I would suggest, raise the price of a coffee or whatever. You're really fighting government. And, you know, government, in the end, makes the decisions, whether you like it or not. You can change the government, of course. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, I know Brown has said that if he was elected, he would bring this, he would bring this, introduce this more slowly. But it should it be done. I, I, it's you know it's really it's really a, a, a pox on both their houses at, at some point, and that's what this is right now. This is this is a fight between the government and small business. Where does it end? The consumers will be affected somehow, and the consumers may just throw up their hands and say, and I'm not suggesting anything here, by the way, but may should you know just throw up their hands and say. Well, if you're going to treat their employees like that, I'm not going to go there. Mm-hmm. And, and there has been talk of boycotting those those outlets in in Coburg. So I well, think that's a mistake. I, I way, think so too, because you're hurting the worker. Oh, of course you. So you're really it's really a vicious circle. You're going right back around. If you if you boycott, you're hurting the people that you're trying to protect. Exactly, Richard. Appreciate the time today. We're out of time, and uh, enjoy the rest of the weekend. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Bye, Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covering Queens Park and Parliament Hill, uh, chiming in on uh, the premier's comments yesterday about uh, the uh, Tim Hortons. Uh, billionaire co-founders sending a letter to their employees saying uh, we're making some cutbacks because the hourly minimum wage is going up. Dave on uh, email has chimed in. Your guest is spot on. Charge a bit more, which I liken the price of Tim's coffee to the price of gas. They can put it at whatever uh, price and we're going to buy it. That's really the way it works. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. President Donald Trump says an explosive new book about the first year of his presidency is full of lies, misrepresentations, and sources that don't exist. Trump, on Twitter last night, before today's release of Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff. Trump tweeted, I authorized zero access to White House, actually turned him down many times, for author of Phony Book. I never spoke to him for book. Full of lies, misrepresentations, and sources that don't exist. Look at this guy's past and watch what happens to him and Sloppy Steve. Now, that appears to be a reference to former White House strategist Steve Bannon, whom the book depicts as questioning Trump's competence and describing a June 2016 meeting between Donald Trump Jr., Trump campaign aides, and a Russian lawyer as, quote, treasonous and unpatriotic. Bannon, as you know, is Trump's campaign chairman and served as his chief White House strategist and currently serves as chairman of Breitbart News, although backers are demanding his ouster from Breitbart. One of the president's lawyers has sent a cease and desist letter to Wolf and another to the book's publisher, demanding they stop publication and the release of any excerpts. Too late! The book was due to be published on Tuesday, but the publisher says, to heck with this, we're doing it today. Now, the White House has come out and called this book, Fire and Fury, trashy tabloid fiction. Here's spokesperson Sarah Sanders. 
The president absolutely believes in the First Amendment, uh, but as we've said before, the president also believes uh, in making sure that information is accurate before pushing it out as fact when it certainly and clearly is not. George Breckenridge is a retired political science professor at McMaster University and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. George, good morning. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for joining us today. Mm-hmm. Um, explosive comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, Indeed, yeah. Th- this, this could really, I mean, once people start, you know, getting it, reading it, yeah. uh, you know, aside from the excerpts, how, how damaging could this be to the, to the Trump administration? Oh, it's enormously damaging. I mean, partly because uh, it it feeds into a lot of information that was already out there. It confirms, you know, so much of the information and the impressions that people had of of the the total chaos in the White House and the uh, incompetence and unsuitability of President Trump. What could be even more damaging is uh, the, uh, I guess, the risk or the reality that this is going to create even more division in the White House and within the administration. Is that accurate? Oh, I think so, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. From the very beginning, I mean, the, the White House has been pretty chaotic. And then there was a period, you know, from the summer on last year when it looked like General Kelly, you know, the new chief of staff, had sort of brought a bit of order to the whole thing. But this, this portrays a totally chaotic situation where almost everybody, he claims, Michael Wolf claims, uh, thinks that uh, Trump is, is, in, is incapable of being president. So you've got, you know, you've got chaos and maneuvering and attempting to kind of rein him in and push him in certain directions. And most of the time, it doesn't really work. How does this impact the Republican Party? Because Trump has never really been a Republican, even though he's run as a Republican. He called himself an outsider. But how does this affect all the others in the party who are, you know, going into elections, campaigning, speaking with constituents and and now trying to deflect uh, all the... Uh, the poo that's coming from their leader. <laughs> well, very few of the Republicans in Congress wanted Trump. I mean, no, almost nobody wanted it. It was a hostile takeover of a weak of a weak party, which is pretty weak and divided at the minute. Yeah. So Trump really represented a hostile takeover. Nevertheless, the president is always, you know, the face of his party. There's no getting around that. And so they're stuck with him and they don't know what to do. You know, they're on the, on the one hand, they mo- I think most of them would agree with a lot of the things that Michael Wolf says, you know, about his total unfitness to be president for a variety of reasons. But uh, on the other hand, uh, he, his sort of rock solid base of maybe 30 percent of the electorate, which is a big chunk of Repub- the Republican voters. Uh, so the people, you know, the members of Congress who are up for reelection next November, they, they, you know, they're caught in the middle, and they don't want to offend the base. But also, the other problem they have is they don't know what to do, because the only way to get rid of a president, there are only really two ways, and one is to impeach him, and you're not going to get a Republican Congress united enough to even think about seriously about doing that. Uh, and the second one is by the 25th Amendment, by certifying that he's unfit. And you'd have to get a majority of the cabinet. And then as backup, you need two-thirds majority in the Congress. And, you know, neither of these things is feasible at all at the present time. They may in the future become more more feasible. And so the Republicans are stuck because they're stuck with him. They can't avoid the fact that he is the face of the party. And, of course, he's... 
<laughs> excuse me, he's such a big fish. I mean, he, his person, his temperament is that he's always got to be in the news. And so, you know, they can't sort of hide him. They can't ignore him. You know, they're really stuck, and it, it bodes very badly for the Republicans starting in, in, in next November. Our guest is George Breckenridge, a retired political science professor at McMaster University, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. What does this do to Robert Mueller's investigation? Just another bullet in the chamber? Oh, I think so, yes. I think the, uh, the evidence about that meeting in the summer where they were where Trump was leading the concocting a story to put out to deny you know the more serious things that apparently went on in that but the meeting was called because the Russians offered were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton um, you know which which is, would be a very serious matter so they were, he was taking the lead in concocting the story his son had got him into this and uh, you know a false story and there were lots of witnesses there uh, while he was doing this. You know, so it, it, it piles, up, piles on the whole notion of obstruction of justice. You know, the, the, a, lot of it, a lot of different parts of, of his behavior have, um, you know, sort of building up a case of obstruction of justice. And, um, but also the fact that, um, yeah, it, it, and the, the other issue that it raises for the first time in a clearer way is the whole question of money laundering. I mean, I've thought for a long time, the, the curious thing has always been about why on earth was Trump so, you know, so positive about Putin and, and Russia, uh, completely going against the grain of the Republican Party, certainly. And in American politics in general, it would seem, what have they got on him? You know, what's the whole? And uh, I thought, you know, his sons have boasted in the past, before the campaign arose, that they, they had found a new source of money. You know, they were getting loans from from uh, Russian oligarchs or through banks like Deutsche Bank or a bank in Cyprus was another one that was used by the Russian oligarchs to launder their money, to get their money out of the country. And Trump seems to be, you know, up to, up to his you know, neck in this. And um, that's, an, that's illegal. You know, so it, it opens up a whole new sort of form of explanation as to why the Russians seem to have something on him to make him so consistently, consistently favorable and unwilling to say anything negative about about Putin and the Russians in general. Never seems to be a dull day at the White House. George, no, absolutely. Pre- it's chaos. Pre- <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Appreciate the time today. Okay, you're welcome, Greg. George Breckenridge, retired political science professor at McMaster University. A fresh tweet from Donald J. Trump, president of the USA, 12 minutes ago. Well, now that collusion with Russia is proving to be a total hoax, and the only collusion is with Hillary Clinton and the FBI Russia, the fake news media, mainstream, and this phony new book are hitting out at every new front imaginable. They should try winning an election. Sad. Here's just one excerpt from this new book uh, called Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff. If he, Trump, was not having his 6.30 dinner with Steve Bannon, then more to his liking, he was in bed by that time with a cheeseburger, watching his three screens and making phone calls. The phone was his true contact point with the world to a small group of friends who charted his rising and falling levels of agitation through the evening and then compared notes with one another. Man, oh man, can't wait 
to read it. And I'm sure millions more are going to be doing the same. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, we welcome in the Chief of Police, Eric Gertz, for his monthly town hall, first of the year. Uh, thanks for coming in. Happy New Year. Same to you, Rick. Happy New Year and uh, to all our listeners as well. Excellent. Uh, well, let's start with, uh, we have a number of issues we're going to get to, including Bill 175, uh, new community survey, police budget, uh, and all the fun stuff that uh, go along uh, with that. Uh, legalized recreational marijuana is coming to Canada this summer. Uh, we'll begin with uh, a new story out this morning where a body was found early this morning in the East End uh, in the Burlington Street Gage area. Any details you can pass along? Yeah, so we've released through the media release what we have now, but obviously uh, with any sudden death investigation, we have to make sure that next of kin is notified, that it's not in fact a major case, meaning if it's a suspicious death, then obviously we click into uh, our um, our adequacy that directs how those investigations are done, which is major case management. And our spokesperson in that case is a detective sergeant who is in charge of the case. So um, they're still investigating uh, the circumstances, and uh, when that comes out, we'll release that. So they're looking uh, at anything under the sun in terms of weather, whether it yep. is suspicious, us, uh, all that kind of well, stuff. Well, we do in any case, right? It, it could be anything from a natural death where somebody has... Um, uh, ended up in a snowbank or out in inclement weather, uh, but is are there suspicious circumstances? We're always obviously attentive to that, um, and we have to determine based on that. You handle the scene as if it is a homicide in any cases, not that it is, but if it is, and then you work down kind of, so to speak, from that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the weather. Policing in this kind of brutally cold weather, I mean, it's minus 30 whatever with the wind chill. How difficult is that? Well, you, you'd mentioned that, and uh, I immediately thought of that commercial that's on where it's a, a pursuit in Canada. <laughs> yes, which is still hilarious. <laughs> and the bad guys are driving, they're spinning their tires, and then the police are spinning their tires to get up and back. they're both pushing the Push vehicles. the cars. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, when you really look at policing, uh, and I think of maybe a foot pursuit in the snow, you know, always on TV, it seems to be dry weather, everything's fine, but you actually do get involved in those circumstances. And I guess it, from an external view, it could be quite hilarious where, uh, you know, the pursuit and the pursuer are both slipping and sliding all over the place. Uh, but on a more serious note, you know, if you get into uh, an interaction that involves violence or lethal interaction, um, it's very difficult in that weather. Uh, controlling scenes, doing uh, traffic control. And uh, the news story uh, through uh, Police Watch and Cable 14 was uh, the toques that we've issued. Um, but you look at, we have what are uh, called Yukon caps, which have the little flaps. Uh, think of Bob and Doug McKenzie, mm-hmm. and the movie Fargo and things like that. Um, they're very functional, very practical. Uh, but there are some limitations because as you put the flaps down, your hearing's diminished somewhat. With toques, it's not the same. Mm. Uh, the ease of putting a toque on and off. And then, uh, as I say, you know, the number of officers actually tie up uh, the ties underneath their chin with the ear flaps down. Y- y- you could feel a little silly, but I mean, when I, I was doing traffic out in Flamborough, I was thankful for that piece of equipment. <laughs> you believe stay me. warm, right? Yeah, and you had your, you know, and if you're out there for three or four hours, you're extremely thankful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's the uh, weather application. Like, um, you know, how do you handle the call? What's the impact? Even if you're doing investigations, what's the impact? Will evidence be lost? Um, you know, we've got footprints through the snow. Mm-hmm. Is it melting currently or is it frozen? You know, you have to be careful about those things. So, yeah, weather enters into kind of all aspects of policing. No doubt about it. Is is the mounted unit still uh, in, in effect or is that kind mm-hmm. of called off? We had four horses out yesterday really? in uh, all three divisions. 
And uh, I asked, I said, uh, horses good? Oh yeah, they're fine. Uh, <laughs> I guess they like the weather and, uh, you know, we dress them accordingly and, right. and our members, we've come up with some long coats as well for this type of weather, some foot warmers, because you can only imagine if you're sitting in stirrups, which yeah. is metal, and then you've just got regular issue boots, feet can get pretty cold. I mean, if you've done any snowmobiling, it's fairly similar. Yeah. Now you're not going the speeds of a snowmobile, but if you're galloping on a horse, you've got wind issues too. So yeah, we, uh, we try and dress our people accordingly for that, but no, we're still out and the horses are enjoying it from what I understand. I did ask the question today, particularly with it being, you know, minus 30, minus 40 mm-hmm. with wind chill. Yeah. I don't know they're out doing their business. Uh, let's open up the phone lines if uh, there is someone out in the community who wants to ask a question of Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gertz. Uh, lines are open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You can email a question, rick at 900chml.com or on Twitter at Rick Samprin or at am900chml. All right, let's talk about the police budget. Uh, a lot of numbers, a lot of data, and a lot of work goes into this. Mm-hmm. We actually start about July, August, and in some cases earlier than that. Uh, we do what's called a zero-based budgeting, which is look at every line item. Is it required or not? And I'm sure I'm a scourge to my commanders when I ask them those questions and say, you know, uh, did you spend that money last year? Is it still required? Uh, my view is if we're not and you don't need it for the next year, eliminate it. That may give you a possibility for money somewhere else. So a zero-based budgeting as opposed to a status quo budgeting is very different. Uh, we're coming at 2.45% this year. Uh, that has been approved by the board. It, uh, of course, has to go to council uh, later this month. Uh, that is the lowest uh, percentage increase in the levy in 19 years. Uh, we, I did ask for uh, nine uh, new positions. Six of them are civilian. And uh, they will be going out and getting, a lot of it is related to, I'll call it the digital tsunami or the digital tidal wave uh, in deference to what's happening out on the East Coast right now, um, which is, a, uh, I think they're calling it some kind of bomb. Weather bomb. <laughs> Weather yeah. bomb. Um, but we're, we're seeing um, a huge increase in digital evidence, whether it's videos, f- evidences on phones, computers, other pieces of iPads, equipment, whatever. Um, as you know, and I, I've referenced both the Bosman investigation, where we're seeing the video patched together, whether it was at uh, sites in Mississauga where the two accused went, whether it's uh, Waterloo in the hangar, and of course the dime and date stamps all have to be verified, how you gather it, uh, keeping it, uh, the integrity of that evidence, because it's evidence for court. And then uh, we have to have tech crime unit officers who then patch that together to make it understandable. But when you do so, uh, as you can see in you know, what I've watched just from my vantage point through watching on media, it's very compelling evidence. And you do have to make sure that the integrity of that evidence is pristine. So when it gets to court, there's no questions about, you know, and I know for all of us, you know, the VCRs with the 12 o'clock <laughs> flashing mm-hmm. forever. Some people know how to, I'm one of them because I took the time, but, uh, you know, or it just stays that way. Well, some people who purchase commercial equipment, they may or may not set the time properly. Or there's a power outage. We have to verify all those things. So we've got six per, uh, civilians who will be going out and gathering that evidence. Everything from taxi cab videos, because as you know, we have videos inside our taxi cabs, to commercial properties, uh, residential properties, uh, like I say, computers, phones, iPads, it goes on and on. We've seen a huge growth in that. Uh, we have two tech crime positions who will then uh, analyze, aggregate that information, put it in an understandable fashion. And I've asked for uh, an additional sexual assault investigator. Um, it, kind of a good and a bad news story. The good news story is we're having more reported uh, cases, which we knew were out there. Uh, does that necessarily mean that the cases are higher? Well, uh, I think all you really have to do is look at the media and, and Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and on and on it goes. Right. Uh, the things were not reported for many years. Now they are. 
Um, so we view that as a positive that uh, victims are willing to come forward. As you know, we're doing our uh, sexual assault community review team work to look at unfounded cases and look at better methodology uh, in partnership with um, our community members, including uh, a number of agencies that advocate uh, both for women in domestic situations, but also sexual assault and our First Nations. Uh, so uh, you have to be able to handle that evidence we need to do the investigations properly with regard to sexual assaults. Uh, the caseload is quite high. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's 2.54%. It's uh, the lowest budget, as they say, in 19 uh, years for percentage increase in the total levy. And uh, we have nine uh, new positions. Are uh, other police forces uh, in the province focusing on that technology aspect of policing? Uh, I haven't looked to their specific submissions. Uh, my view would be that it's impacting all of us. Right. Uh, and even if you look at uh, cybercrime, uh, now that's not really a distinct category because uh, it's, it's not classified as a specific crime. And they're, you know, at the national level, um, getting into deliberations about how it's going to be captured, measured, uh, counted, all mm -hmm. those things. But really when you look at it, um, Technology is just a tool to enact the crime, whether it's a fraud, could be a criminal harassment, um, not necessarily assault, but you may have aftermaths of that threats. Um, all the nature of crime that can be conducted through technology, well, that's cybercrime. So cybercrime translates into we have to gather the evidence. Um, so uh, we're all impacted by it. Uh, it has been a huge growth. And quite frankly, you know, in five years, I don't know what technology is going to be out there that hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get to the, you know, Star Trek uh, thing. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. Well, who knows, Te Teleportation, right? yeah. I mean, just, you know. It, it has been, uh, you know, incredibly fast in terms yes. of, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, we, we didn't have touch phones. Now we're all carrying around computers, right? Exactly. And I mean, all the detail that's there. And we had a recent court, Supreme Court uh, case decision on December 8th, America decision. And what the courts have decided is that if I text you, say, Rick, and say, you know, I'm going to kill you or whatever, um, I'm entitled, believe it or not, to privacy about the threat that I just issued to you. Wow. So if you say to me as the police, uh, I've got this threat on the phone, I say, well, wait a minute, I've got to get a production order or warrant, um, and I have to go get judicial authority to get that evidence to gather, mm -hmm. which we're doing now. But that increases the complexity, the time. You know, when you talk about how detailed investigations are, again, I allude to the Bosma case, right? Six, seven months for trial. Right. You had five jurisdictions involved. Uh, there were, when we're doing the investigation, there were three major investigations going on. It was a multi-jurisdictional major case management, which means you had the Tim Bosma homicide. You had the Laura Bob Babcock, which we've seen the decision mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. And we still have another case outstanding. So just the complexity there. And then it split off into three yeah. and then six to seven months just in the one trial with all the evidence that had to be gathered, including all the technology, which, you know, it's been alluded to in both trials. Mm -hmm. so. so how does the budget process work? <coughs> you put forward, uh, you know, here's our proposed increase. Uh, that is ultimately going to go to council. Can they say, you know what, we don't like that. Let's make it closer to 1% or zero. Or how does that work? Yeah, the act is very specific in that uh, the board uh, can take discrete items and say yes, no, or otherwise. I obviously make my submissions to the police services board. The board then, it's actually not me that brings that forward. The board then brings it forward to council. Council has the right to say yes or no. Mm -hmm. 
uh, but they can't pull out discrete items and say, uh, eliminate this, add this, get rid of this. Um, so it's all or nothing from, from council. Uh, well, I guess you could say that, but if they say no, then, uh, technically the board can then make a decision whether to appeal that to, as it stands now, and we'll get into it, uh, the Ontario Civilian Police Commission, who mm-hmm. would then review that and say, is that reasonable? And uh, keeping in mind that the purpose of the board is to meet, uh, you know, what the community needs are in terms of public safety. So uh, it's slightly different slant, and it's why the board is set up to do that. Then the board brings it to council. Obviously, you know, because we have three councillors on the board, plus a citizen appointment, four of the seven, are invested in, you know, kind of the larger perspective of what the city needs are. And certainly I get it. I get it in terms of infrastructure. Uh, You know, I've been a Hamiltonian all my life. Mm -hmm. So I understand the city's needs relative to, uh, you know, the changing economy. Uh, We don't have those two major, you know, being DeFasco and uh, Stelco back then, now under new names. And yes, they're still contributing, but not to the same size. And, you know, uh, Hamilton Health Science is actually the largest employer. And uh, social service work, public work, is now the largest. So it's all changed. Um, And, uh, you know, our population's increasing. Good. We're seeing, as I say, cranes going up in the neighborhood, meaning there's building. Uh, We've seen uh, the largest uh, building permits, uh, again, over a billion dollars this year. So... And our um, uh, our rate of unemployment is the lowest, I believe, in about five years. Mm. So we look at those economic indicators as well. So, you know, as a police service, we're tuned into um, both trying to grow the economy, make and increase public safety where we can. And, you know, we're stemming the tide for all the larger dynamics that are going on across Canada and North America. This being the lowest budget, uh, requested budget increase in, uh, uh, I think you said 19 years yep. or 17 years. Um Do you expect any pushback from council? I I will have many questions. Uh, uh, We normally do, and and I'm happy to answer the questions, both for the councillors and their constituents in those areas. Uh, My view is we've tried to put forward a responsible budget. Uh, I still, I have to do the intermediary part between the needs of our frontline and the staffing issues. And, uh, you know, the increasing workload that has happened, and we look at workload, we look at crime severity index, look at many, many indicators. So it's, to your point, it's a process that starts over a very long period of time, has a lot of analytics involved. And then, you know, we have to be responsible to the taxpayer and also to keeping citizens safe. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A couple of emails have come in. This one from Phil. Uh, Good morning, Chief. What is being done about drivers who don't adjust their speed in relation to the snowy and icy conditions? The other day, saw a guy sliding back and forth down King Street, and it was a miracle he never hit another motorist. Happy New Year to both of you. Shivering in the hammer, Phil. Uh, what I can say is we continue our efforts. Actually, we did a campaign between uh, December 31st to January 2nd uh, last year and this year as well. Now, the weather was different between, but, uh, you know, 200 provincial offense notices last year, 61 this year, and arrests were impaired in a whole range of offenses. I can tell you, actually, I was on police watch the other day and I was coming along Main Street by James Street and I saw a guy coming up uh, one lane over uh, my guesstimate was between 80 to 100 kilometers on Main <laughs> wow. Street, and I pulled them over. Now, I didn't have radar, but, you know, from a public safety point of view, my issue is I don't then track in behind a guy going that fast so I can get the ticket. Yeah. I just pulled him over immediately and stopped him, and, you know, he had a uh, reason which I, I don't think was valid. Um, so, it, you know, in this case, he got a warning, but nonetheless, it's that whole public safety part. And, you know, if I'd had the evidence, I, I worked traffic for five years. You know, I, I don't hesitate to give a provincial offense notice and take it to court. Uh, but it's a continuing effort, as I say. So we continue with the traffic enforcement, 
continue with our ride lanes, continue with impaired driving. And uh, again, for our program for Operation Lookout, when you see people who are conducting themselves in manners that are uh, dangerous to public safety and somebody's going to get killed, that's a 911 call. Uh, give us a call, and if we're in the area, which can happen, certainly for impaired driving, but also for speeding offenses as well um, in that type of weather, like you say. And, and that was my point to this driver. You know, uh, yes, you're doing that speed, but, you know, we've got icy road conditions. So I said, what if somebody turns out from, you know, uh, a T intersection, mm-hmm. and now you have to react to it? I said, you're not going to have time to no deal way. with that, and you're not going to be able to stop. So, uh, one, it's unsafe to begin with, and two, he's lucky nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Vic has called in, and uh, Vic joins the show now. Good morning, Vic. How are you? I'm good. How are you, gentlemen? Happy New Year. Very good. Same to you. Thanks for calling in. What's your question? Uh, uh, My question is, I'd like to know why uh, Matthew Green, the alderman, wasn't charged with uh, obstructing police. Because all the police officer was doing, for one, was wanting to find out what he was doing in that neighborhood at that hour of the morning, and two, if he was okay. And he turned around and is playing discrimination. Well, if an alderman starts doing this, the public is going to start doing this, and the police can't do their job to keep us safe. Vic, appreciate the question. Let's have the chief uh, respond. Go ahead, chief. Uh, so as you know, Vic, this is a case that's currently before the tribunal. Um, just how it works for any cases that are before a tribunal, I can't speak to it. And the reason I can't is I designate a hearing officer to hear that matter. Uh, if I weigh in, then obviously I'm influencing or potentially speaking to the case, which I don't do. Um, and it's, you know, it's gone on for some time. Uh, so we wait the decision of the hearing officer. Uh, I can't speak to any of those specifics. It is a matter before the tribunal. And then depending on the outcome, that can be appealable by both parts, all the way up to divisional court and so on. So it's much like uh, a criminal case or other cases that are before the courts. Uh, we don't speak to those when the process is uh, is in play, which it is now. So uh, A, I can't speak to it, and B, I won't. And uh, we await the decision of the hearing officer. Do we have a date on the decision? I believe the hearing officer was going to uh, write the decision and notify um, the parties when he's ready to come back with that decision. Okay. Uh, Email from uh, Dave who writes, uh, given all the modern technology at hand, why does it take so long uh, for road closures to clear accidents these days? Yeah, and it's really not technology related in a sense because it's either the, um, you know, the intersection is physically, physically obstructed. As you know, we have uh, collision reporting centers now. So if there's no personal injury, and then we recommend that the intersection is cleared, uh, that uh, people attend at the collision reporting center, and that way that uh, clears the intersection. You know, it's with the OPP as well. I think they call it steer to clear uh, when you're on the 400 series highways if there's no personal injury. And uh, it's the same thing for us. However, where we do have personal injury or fatal collision, yes, things can be wrapped up for some time. Relative to the technology, if we in fact have a collision, uh, then we actually map out through a sequia, which is a surveillance um, and surveying system, to map out all the evidence at that site. That can take a tremendous amount of time. And Ricky asked the questions about weather. Well, we have fatal collisions in this type of weather. Mm -hmm. Now you're dealing with snow and all the impediments uh, to those things of doing all the measurements and evidence gathering that you have to do. So it can be lengthy. Uh, regarding personal injury accidents, uh, you know, civil suits flow from those. So we want to make sure that we gather the evidence in the proper manner. It takes time. So I don't know the technology uh, as a, 
whatever that technology would be, would clear quicker. We try and do processes uh, to expedite clearing of the roadways. But again, uh, if there are evidentiary requirements, then we do that as well. Got another caller on the line. This is Frank. Frank, go ahead. You're speaking with Hamilton Police Chief uh, Eric Gert. Good morning. Uh, Good Eric. morning. I just have a question regarding um, cars that are driving at night, and I'm sure you've seen them, that do not have their rear taillights illuminated. I hate that. Uh, <laughs> I do too, and I know that the reason being, and I think you'll um, you'll tie into this, is that uh, those who drive uh, in that condition unknowingly do so, not deliberately in most cases, because their gears, their um, signal uh, shifter is on. Uh, not on the automatic setting, which most new cars now have, which do automatically illuminates both the headlights and the rear lights um, in conjunction. So do you do, do your officers stop people? I, I've driven along a back back road at night when I, I'm coming along behind somebody and didn't see them in a, in a blowing snow or across a field until I've actually approached them. Mm-hmm. And even then, if they if they stop all of a sudden, their taillights come out brilliantly illuminated sort of like not uh, in, a, in a gradual understanding that they're there, but almost as an immediate awareness. Uh, what do you got to say about that? Uh, yeah, I I'll, s- I'll hang up and I'll listen to you and let other people on, okay? okay? Thanks, okay. Frank. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Frank. Uh, really, it's a byproduct in many times, and you've pointed it out, to daylight running lights. So if you're looking out the front of your vehicle, even though they're not as bright, the daylight running lights, you may be driving at night and thinking, oh, no, my lights are on. And, of course, you can't get out, or there's, there's various methods to, test your brake lights. Often if you drive up to the storefront or things like that, you can look in your mirror and see it in the reflection. Uh, but if you don't do that on a regular basis or even just apply your brake lights to see if they're working, um, that's a problem. And you talked about the automatic setting for your light setting. Yes, it automatically adjusts to the light conditions. Uh, but if you're using a manual setting for it, then you have to deliberately turn your lights on. Uh, so I think it's it's a bit of a byproduct of the safety uh, that was contemplated through daylight running lights. Uh, and the reason they did that was you were better seen even during daylight hours when your lights are on. To your point, when the taillights are not on, and I have stopped vehicles personally, uh, and I suspect our members do as well, usually it's, oh, geez, I didn't know I had that on. You know, do I give you a ticket for not having your lights on properly? Theoretically, uh, is that a real confidence builder with the public uh, if they've made a legitimate error? You know, are people doing it intentionally? Uh, I would largely think not. However, you know, you're also responsible for assuring that the equipment in your vehicle is working properly and on and that you can be seen, to your point. And then also to your point, when the brake lights are applied, it's like, wow, it just went from, you know, a lower, softer setting on the taillights to very bright brake lights. And particularly in inclement weather, it's really hazardous. Mm-hmm. As you know, and, and some people do, uh, either if you're in fog or a snowstorm, you put your four-ways on. Why? So you can be seen. So the whole premise that to be seen is important. I agree. Uh, it's officer's discretion at the roadside uh, if you stop a vehicle doing that to issue a ticket or not. It's kind of like um, unnecessary slow driving, the question we've had on this show before as well. And I stop people for that. You know, they're doing 40K on an 80K highway. Well, uh, you could say that's within the speed limit, but the reason they put unnecessary slow driving was you can become a hazard uh, for all the other vehicles traveling within, you know, the maximum speed limit. And uh, so uh, it's, it's a discretionary thing in terms of issuing. Notices. Mentioned that uh, slow, uh, the, the unnecessary uh, slow driving uh, reminds me of that woman uh, just a few months ago in Brockville or, or near Brockville on the 401, 
in the fast lane with her high beams on was going 40 in a 100, thinking right. that was the speed limit. Yes, and very hazardous, very right? When you've so. got the other two lanes doing either 90, 100, or in excess, 110, 120, mm-hmm. and there you are in the passing lane at 40K. So, you know, you're in the, the second lane over behind a transport or something. You go to pass because it looks clear, and holy smokes, yeah. uh, now you're you in really hazardous. Yeah. Exactly. So extremely hazardous. I, I've seen, uh, no, I'm not sure what the reason for this is, but a number, and, and many more in terms of numbers, vehicles driving with their running lights, uh, not only at dusk, but I mean even beyond that. And it's 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 unbelievable. It is startling when you come across the vehicle and thinking, what's this person thinking? Agreed. And it's an indicator for us. It may be beyond just not turning your lights on. Right. It can be indications of impaired driving. You're not activating any of your switches inside the vehicle, uh, the nature of the driving. So it's uh, often, not always, indicative of either impaired driving or other things going on. Mm-hmm. It could even be sleep deprivation as to why the person is driving in the manner they are. Yeah. Uh, We have an email from Phil. Uh, Hello, Chief. If someone is pulled over and is suspected of having marijuana in their system, is there some kind of test administered on the spot similar to a breathalyzer for those who have been drinking? Yeah, so they've developed some equipment uh, around a whole range of drugs. Uh, Usually it's a saliva test that is taken uh, at roadside, and they're uh, classified as approved screening devices for alcohol samples. Uh, It's the same uh, curriculum, so to speak, or requirements for drug testing. At this point in time, uh, the province has not set out those requirements or thresholds for various drugs. However, our approach to that is uh, field sobriety tests at the roadside. So if I suspect marijuana use, then I'm doing physical checks for uh, your level of impairment and dishy of impairment. And then if you are arrested at roadside uh, on, uh, you know, reasonable grounds, uh, you can be taken in for tests. And we have what are called drug recognition experts. So these are officers who've gone down and done training, actually with live subjects who've been consuming uh, drugs, and largely that's done down in the States for obvious reasons. And they have to uh, identify what the substance is, uh, what uh, the physical symptoms are, and be able to describe that. And they're qualified as experts in court. So we do have drug recognition experts. I've had for some time. Uh, we're increasing in contemplation of uh, the legalization of marijuana, potentially by July 1st next, this year now, this year. Um, then we are increasing both uh, training for our drug recognition experts, but also our uh, field sobriety tests at roadside for our frontline officers. So uh, that legislation for driving with either alcohol or drugs has been in the criminal code for a long time. Mm. In fact, uh, I had a case when I was a breathalyzer technician, uh, and the person came in and they did not have a high concentration of alcohol, but they had prescription medication, and my questions were, you know, um, do you have that? Yes. Is that a warning on the label? Yes. Were you aware that you shouldn't be driving when you've consumed whatever the substance is? Yes. Well, then I have a case uh, that I took to courts and successfully prosecuted for impaired driving by um, drugs. So, you know, when we talk about marijuana, it can be any drugs, but it can also be a combination of things. It can be drugs, it can be alcohol. Uh, The other physical symptoms that enter it, um, sleep impairment, you haven't eaten, uh, all those type of things. But it's based on the physical signs of impaired driving. Uh, With legalization of uh, recreational marijuana coming into effect this summer, is and a lot is still to be decided, is uh, the Hamilton Police Service ready for whatever is decided? And, and how it's implemented? Yeah, and part of our difficulty right now, and, and, and we've voiced this both through the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, but also the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, is uh, we need what the requirements and rules will be from the federal government. 
Uh, I have talked before about Minister Nakvi uh, coming out ahead of the curve, so to speak, in terms of the distribution of medical marijuana. Mm. Again, this impacts uh, policing resources. Um, the drug recognition experts is a direct impact, and as I say, we're gearing up towards that. Uh, we've been following very closely roadside screening devices, and you know whether it's the Center of Forensic Sciences or Ontario Police College, and uh, getting those properly approved to the government. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, but so we're preparing, even if they're not ready for that, how we're going to do that enforcement. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very, very broad category. Part of our concerns, again, from the chiefs of police is, <clears throat> you know, THC content, uh, the active ingredient in marijuana, uh, you know, for those uh, who are adults, okay. Uh, we had a most uh, recent meeting around this, and uh, those in the field are saying, well, you know, THC affects youth up to about the age of 22. Uh, they're talking about a legalized age of 19. And that's on brain development and all the other things. Yes, that's a health issue, uh, but, you know, we have to advocate as well for our youth. Uh, distribution of THC and other products. And I've talked about, you know, gummy bears. And let's face it, they're going to market to that audience, mm-hmm. uh, those who are distributing drugs. And, you know, my concern is uh, youth consuming it, maybe not smoking it. We know they do now. But now you've got increased uh, availability through other marketing. And then you get hooked on THC. Um, there's arguments about whether it's addictive or not. I get that. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it has tremendous health impacts. The thing that's been missing... <laughs> that surprises me is we've had this anti-smoking campaign and all the deleterious effects from, you know, cancer and everything else. Well, when you're smoking marijuana, many of the the, um, toxic chemicals beyond THC, they're there in marijuana as well. I'm not hearing that dialogue going on about, uh, I guess, theory as well, they're going to consume it in hash brownies or some Mm -hmm. other method. Mm -hmm. But let's face it, most of them still smoke and has all the deleterious hazards of smoking, which costs uh, our government uh, in terms of health costs, uh, detrimental uh, effects for people consuming and smoking, and then the health costs associated. So beyond just you know driving impaired or the deleterious effects, uh, you have to take a very broad approach to this. Yeah. I'm not sure if we're going to get to all our topics, but we do have a couple of callers on the line. I always like to get uh, our listeners involved in the program, one of those being Brian, who has called into the program. Hey, Brian, how are you? Morning. Morning, Chief. How are you? Morning, Brian. Very well. Uh, just on that light situation i uh i drive i'm on the road for a living i drive about 80 to 100k a year and you see that more and more where people are driving and they, they don't have their taillights activated but i think the problem the main issue with that is if you notice on the newer cars when you start your car your dash lights automatically come on inside mm-hmm. where before you had to activate your headlights before your dash lights would come on yep so these people are driving thinking that their lights are on correct and they don't, and you see it more and more all the time where, you know, I've called people into service centers on the 401 and said, hey, like, you don't have any taillights. And then you look in the you know, on the dash and you'll find that they just aren't on, but they think they're on because everything's lit up inside the car. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's, the, that's the biggest problem. they got to get the manufacturers to go back to the old way <laughs> where your dash lights don't come on unless you have your headlights activated. And that way the person in the car would know they don't have their lights on. Yeah. And, you know, I almost go back to my driver training when I was 16, and they said, you know, once you've started your car, provided some park, get out of the car, do a walk around, and if you do that as a matter of habit, one, 
Uh, there may be obstructions behind you that you can't see if you just got in your driver's side, but, you know, whether it's a kid's toy or, or even a kid, right, because you see the backing up accidents where youth are run over. So, you know, once around your vehicle to make sure everything's okay, it could be as simple as checking. You've turned your lights on, now you think they're on, and you go, oh, my brake lights aren't on. So uh, I agree, it, it's more of a design issue, but there are ways to solve it, and that's one of the ways is do once around your vehicle it meets a number of requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Are there hazards behind it? The things that happened uh, since you parked? Uh, one of the driver training pieces we get in our job is backing into parking spots so that when you drive out, you're looking ahead, you're not backing up. I know it's a simple thing, but when you get into the habit of doing that and once around your vehicle, think about the hydro vehicles. They always put the pylons uh, when they park the vehicle. That's not only to be seen, but it requires the driver to then get out, gather up the pylons, and in effect, do a once around the vehicle. So there are different solutions to it, uh, but I tend to agree with you. I think it's an engineering application and you think, oh, my, you know, my dash lights are on, uh, my lights must be on, but not necessarily. Yeah. Appreciate the uh, question, Brian. Let's go to uh, Dan, who was called in. Hey, Dan. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Happy New Year. Same to you. Yeah, I do a lot of driving and um, I've noticed a lot of single lights, headlights are burned out and taillights are burned out. Now, um, that's a safety issue. Agreed. Yes, and um, you know, and I'm seeing more and more. Like I mean, at night, I'm, I'm counting like five, six, seven vehicles like that. And uh, so, one of my recommendations I was thinking about it is why can't the car people incorporate some kind of device when a safety issue problem on the vehicle it won't start. Oh, and you're, you're not going to be allowed to drive that vehicle until you have that safety issue fixed. Be a lot of disabled vehicles in town, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, it's it's very dangerous. I've called sure. in more, you know, uh, to the radio room regarding that, and you know, yet it's still persistent. Are are, you, are your officers enforcing this right now? Yeah, and one of the ways we do it, and actually it's something we handle in our ride lanes as well. So if you pull up at night and we're doing ride lanes, uh, you may get an equipment warning. Or, you know, if it's if it's so obvious, uh, you get an actual offense notice. Uh, but an equipment warning, which gives you 72 hours to comply with, either the one headlight, the one taillight, and you have to come in and then show evidence that it's been fixed and it's under a specific timeline. So, yes, we continue to do that. But, again, you know, from a, a public perception, uh, people give you the argument, well, no, it was fine when I started and it must have happened while I was driving. I can't prove or disprove that. Uh, so we've gone to a program largely where we give equipment warnings to look after those issues. I don't disagree with you that it's a safety issue because, again, when you see one headlight, you don't understand either the width of the vehicle coming at you. It could be a motorcycle. Uh, you don't know. Even motorcycles, I've seen them without headlights, and those are all automatic uh, that they turn on. Um, so to your point about an engineering application, yeah, I think there's probably methods they can do it. And I know in you know, some of the higher-end vehicles tell you when your tire pressure is low. It will tell you when a headlight is out if your daylight running lights are out and then you know to your point go and get it fixed mm-hmm. appreciate the call dan uh, chief we're plum out of time uh, oh. we're gonna have to get to all these issues ne- <laughs> next month okay. but again appreciate you always coming in and uh, sharing your thoughts on uh, keeping our city safe and uh, enjoy the rest of the month thank you very much i'm gonna make a very quick pitch for yes. a hamilton community survey yes go to our website uh, we're looking for input into our next business plan it's a survey monkey takes about five minutes and it will look at uh, key issues in your neighborhoods. Uh, we're up about triple this year using social media. So by all means, go to the website and participate. We'd Ham- appreciate it. HamiltonPolice.ca. Thank you. You got it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.